Thank you very much, Brendan, for reading for us. Um, uh, let me add my welcome to Lewis's from earlier. Uh, you've joined us, if you do happen to be here um, sort of for the first time this Sunday, uh, just in a, in a summer series based in just this one chapter, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, um, where we, we find God's people sort of poised on the edge of the, the promised land, uh, making this, this second attempt uh, to enter the land. Um, and as with any major project, they get their instructions God wants his people to know how he would have them live in the land. Just as indeed, for you and I, if you're a Christian believer, he wants you and I to know how to live in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But it's important we don't misunderstand this. This doesn't mean that Deuteronomy is some kind of entrance requirement. Uh, as if God is, is setting the people a kind of entrance exam to find out whether or not they're going to get in or not. No, these instructions serve as a description of the way that life is to be in the land. Um, think of it something like an instruction manual. Um, we know what that's like. Um, David and Julia Todd um, have, have moved into the vicarage. And uh, they need to know how things work. So it's the, the, the loft door stuck. How, how do you get it to move? Um, the, 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 the cooker's not working. How do you turn it on? You know, what's this funny little smart meter? How do you read that? Uh, and they need the instructions to know how to enjoy the, the, the blessings of the vicarage. I quite like an illustration that has the vicarage as the promised land. Sort of... <laughs> Quite, quite appeals to me uh, in that kind of way. I'm not sure that David and Julia will be seeing it like that just at the moment, but there we are. Um, so, Deuteronomy, of course, is, is much more personal. I mean, so an instruction manual is actually not a very good illustration, is it? Because, because actually, God isn't telling them how to, to use a bit of technology. No, he's telling them how to live in relationship with him. What, what kind of a... What, kind of a, what the good life looks like in relationship between God and his people. Uh, and that brings me to a question. When you think about the Christian life, how would you describe it? Would you describe it primarily in terms of love or primarily in terms of obedience? Now, instinctively, I guess, we all want to say love. Jesus loves me, and I love him, and being a Christian disciple is, is rich, it's intimate. It's all about love and devotion to Jesus. I don't want to think about the Christian life in terms of duty and obedience, because that sounds sort of cold and controlling, and the Christian life's not like that. And yet... Love for God needs to be done on his terms, doesn't it? Because at the end of the day, God is God. So, Sam and Lucy uh, married here yesterday afternoon. And, and, and the wise sages uh, around the place, you know, always love giving newly married couples loads of advice. So, you know, they, they get lots of advice and lots of give and take in a, in a marriage that's what you need to, to, to make a marriage succeed. Lots of give and take. That's what love looks like in your marriage. 
But it can't be that way with God, can it? You stop and think about it. So, so it's not as though we're going to say to God, look, God, let's have a little bit of, a little bit of flex on your side. Hello, come on, we can negotiate this out together, you and us, God. As though um, we're going to say, look, there's something that we really want, and I'm just wondering whether you could, you know, just accommodate some of your rules a little bit, because, you know, it's, I'd really be quite keen on that. Would it, could, could you fit in? Would that be okay? And when we think like that, we, we immediately realize that the idea of love for God and obedience to God, well, they come together, don't they? And that's what this passage is showing us. Um, in all sorts of ways, actually, it's what Jesus tells us. Think about the number of times that Jesus makes this point. In a little section in John's Gospel, if you love me, he says, keep my commands. But he doesn't just say it once. Whenever, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And then once more, for good measure. Uh, he says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And then finally, a little bit in the next chapter as well, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Four times. In a tiny space in John's Gospel, Jesus is saying, do you get this? You love me, you obey me. You obey me, you're loving me. You obey me, you're remaining in my love. And the reverse is also true. So, seems like a pretty key idea. Let's drill down in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and explore this idea in a little bit more detail. I've got, I've got three ones for us uh, this morning. One God, one life, one priority. So let's start with one God. And because there is one God, it means that, that there, there is nothing and no one that has a higher claim upon us. Um, verse 4 contains one of the most famous sayings in the Old Testament. It's called the, the Shema. In the original, just four Hebrew words, and, and as Hebrew works, it's left to, to, to the reader to supply the verbs. And that's why there's quite a bit of debate about the right way to translate it. But, but the key ideas within this is pretty clear. Yahweh the Lord is God, and Yahweh the Lord is one. In other words, there are no rival gods. There are no alternative gods. And there are no divisions within God. No rival gods, no alternative gods, no divisions within God. And all of which that was really important for the people as they were about to enter a land that had loads of gods. Fertility gods, gods of the harvest, gods of war, gods of the weather. Even some of the gods had sort of consorts or, um, or mistresses, which meant that you know, if, if you weren't doing very well with, with, with this god, well, I'll, just, I'll stop talking to that god. I'll, talk, I'll chat to this god instead, see if I can do a bit better over here. That was the way that the mindset within the people of the land that the Israelites were entering. That's the way that they thought. Israel isn't to think like this. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. One God to obey, one God to follow, one God to worship. 
we are used to wrestling with, with competing demands, aren't we? You know, perhaps at work, um, you know, our boss wants us to do this thing. But then the customer's really keen that we might do this thing. And then we've got this business code of ethics, which says we really ought to do that thing. And you're thinking, oh, how do I, how do I juggle all of this? These competing demands, you know, well, I'll navigate my way through. You know, try and, try and find a path that sort of keeps everyone happy at the same time. But here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It means that it can't be that kind of navigating, negotiating. Just a little bit of flex here, a little bit of flex there. Try and find some way to keep everybody happy. It means that we don't ask, shall I obey God or shall I follow my instincts? It means we don't say to ourselves, shall I obey God or shall I do what my culture seems to say is the right thing to do here? It means that we don't say, shall I obey God or shall I fit in with my family or my peers? It's not like that because there is one Lord. You can't call God God and have it any other way, can you? So first, one God, which means there is no higher claim upon us. He speaks uh, and we obey. And then second, one life, which means that every part must love him. Um, I was reminded uh, in a conversation with my son Tom uh, last week about the pie man, or as Tom likes to call him, um, Pete Tsar. You'll work on that in a minute. Um, not some culinary delight from his childhood, but an illustration of the way that we so often divide up our lives into slices. Pizza. Got it? No, okay. Still not with me. Um, um, it, it goes something like this. Yeah, so perhaps I have a, a job, and so my job gets a slice of, of my time and my energies. Um, but I've also, maybe I'm doing some study. So there's another slice goes to my sort of my education and studies. Um, and then you know, I've got friends, or perhaps I'm married. Another slice uh, of my time and energy goes to them. Uh, then there's my leisure activities, family responsibilities. Another slice there, another slice there. Um, and, and church, because uh, I'm a Christian. So slice of time goes to church uh, as well. And what matters is getting the balance right. So I need to avoid letting God's slice get too small. That's a real danger in the Christian life. Other things competing in. Got to preserve the, the slice that I give to God. Make sure he gets a decent slice of the pie. Perhaps even the biggest slice of the pie, now I come to think about it, if I'm going to be a keen Christian. Uh, that's the way uh, that we might think. Seems very reasonable. Seems very logical. Seems very practical. And it is completely and utterly wrong. Look again at verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Which doesn't really leave much room for manoeuvre, does it? 
but the call of God upon all of us, but certainly the call of God upon a Christian believer, is utterly comprehensive. I mean, start with just, just the first phrase, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Heart in, in our culture tends to draw us in the direction of thinking about our emotions. Um, but um, in the Bible, thinking about the heart was, was rather different. In Bible thought, the heart is, is more like the control center of your life. The, the, the shaping, driving influence of, of everything about you. And actually, uh, although our culture does sort of you know, associate heart and, and romance and, and that kind of emotional engagement, when you look at our language, we know that heart means more than that. Um, just started reading a book um, all about the heart. And in the opening section, the writer comments on the different ways that we think about the heart. Let me just, <clears throat> let me just quote from him uh, briefly. Everyone, he writes, knows what you mean when you use the word heart. If you have a change of heart, you think differently. If your heart was in the right place, you messed up but meant well. When our friends speak from the bottom of their hearts, they're telling the truth. If we take it to heart, we're listening well. If we know it by heart, we're remembering well. If you have a heart of gold, you're kind. If you have no heart, you're mean. If your team lost heart, they gave up. If they showed heart, they rallied. When you wear your heart on your sleeve, you're being transparent. When you put your heart into it, your passion is obvious. We might work half-heartedly on Monday and wholeheartedly before a deadline. Everyone important to you is dear to your heart. And everything important about you is secured in your heart of hearts. Striking, isn't it? When you see how we use the language of heart, we get this. It's, it's really me. It's the control center of my life, my heart. It's what shapes everything about me. And that's just the first part of this great statement. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with everything about you. Uh, and love the Lord your God with all your soul, your very essence, your life. Love the Lord your God with all your strength. That's uh, your abilities and your, and your talents. And these aren't three kind of different sections of you. They're, they're just three different ways of saying everything about you. Everything. Which means Pie Man's got it wrong, hasn't he? Because there aren't supposed to be slices. And Jesus knew that. Which, which is why when someone asked him what the greatest commandment was, this is where he went. He went to Mark 12, 29. Uh, sorry, he went to Deuteronomy 6 in Mark 12, 29 uh, and said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Two, two parts to this great declaration Love the Lord your God, vertical. Love the Lord your God, horizontal. And those two things go together. Because you can't love your neighbor properly if you don't love, your lo love God properly. You'll never get that horizontal love as it should be if God is not where he should be. And that's why Jesus said, 
you ask for one great commandment, I've got to give you two, because they're wrapped up together. So, pie man kind of needs to look like this, doesn't he? With the Lord right there at the center, and with the rule of the Lord radiating out into every part of our life. Of course, there are different things that we do. Of course there are. But the Lord God is in control of all of them. He doesn't just have a little slice. No, no, no. Everything that we are, everything that we do, every part of us given over to devotion to the Lord God. It has to be like that because he is God. But is it? Is it for you and I? A diagram, picture your life at the moment. Um, some devotionals, I don't know if you've come across this phrase, um, I think it's a little bit more common in the States. Um, some devotionals talk in terms of um, having a secret garden, um, but, but by which they, they kind of mean like a, a little walled off area that you kind of feel is yours. You know, God can have the rest, but I've got this little secret garden. You know, I can sneak in there, and it's walled off, and nobody else sees in there. Uh, and in my secret garden, I, I do what I want. As if God can't see. As if there's a bit that God doesn't have ownership over. Is that true of your life or mine? some secret garden that we're clinging on to. Uh, and maybe God has you here this morning to say, it's not good that. Won't profit you. Won't enable you to live well in the land, in the kingdom. No, love me with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength. So first, one Lord which means there's no higher claim over us. Secondly, one life, which means everything that we are uh, given in love of him. And then third, one priority, uh, growing in this obedience to the Lord our God. Um, you notice that um, between verse 5 and verse 6, the language changes. Uh, so verse 5, we've been talking about love. And then in verse 6, we move into commandments. But I think, I think the, the thought remains exactly the same. We've not shifted to a different topic because as we've been thinking, to love God is to obey him. To obey him is to love him. That The two are sort of woven together. You, you can't tease them apart. So having said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with your strength, these commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Well, that's because that's how you love him by obeying what he commands. And the reason for that is that God doesn't issue suggestions. He doesn't say to us, look, here are some things I'd love you to try out. Give them a go. See how they suit. And look, if, if you don't seem to get on with them, then come back and I'll, and I'll see if I've got another set of commandments for you and we'll give those a go till we can find something that, that works for you. I mean, you know that that would be madness. I know that that would be madness. How could we have a God? I mean, God would not be God anymore, would he? He would be like our celestial butler. 
you know, we're desperately trying to you know, see if he can find something that, that, that we quite like. Yeah, you fancy that dish? That dish? Oh, yeah, I'll have that one. That's, that'd be nice. Oh, thanks, God. I mean, it couldn't be God if it worked like that. God rules. God knows. And that's why he commands us. Now, I know we're not Old Testament believers. I know that means that we read the Old Testament through the lens of the new. But God is still God. And he does still have commands. And he puts those commands in front of us and he expects us to obey them. And if we're going to manage to do that and to increasingly do it, um, then these last few verses in our, in our little section here in Deuteronomy 6 gives us some hints about how to go about it. Um, and here they are, quickly. First, it means that we will internalize them. Uh, these commandments are to be on your hearts. In other words, we, we, we're going to take them to heart. We're going to get them inside somehow or other. They need to be internalized so that they sort of belong to us. Um, it, second, it means that we'll discuss them. Verse 7, talk about them when you sit at home, and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when we get up. Church is the place where this stuff gets discussed. That's why we have small groups. That we, that's why we have Christian friends. So we puzzle with this stuff. We work out how does this command get obeyed in this circumstance that I find myself in. And verse uh, 7 as well says, we are to teach them, impress them on your children. It's fascinating this, isn't it? Um, everything, everything that we think about education gets turned upside down in an instant in this verse. You think about that? You see, we think education happens in schools. And this says, no, 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 no. Now you educate at home. We think education gets done by teachers. And this says, no, 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 no. Now education gets done by parents. We think the big plus about education is that it will help us get a good job in the end. And this says, no, 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 no. The big thing about education is that it helps you to know how to be obedient to God. Everything about what really matters with education is changed by this. And then finally, we embrace them. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. Was this symbolic or was this literal? Um, the Old Testament people of God um, sort of wavered in the way that they applied these verses. But, but, but you get the idea. The idea is surround yourself with them. Let them be everywhere. Let them be so central to your life that they're, they're all over the place. So that everyone can see that this is the way you live. These are the commands you stand for. This is what you're committed to. So, uh, I wonder how this section in Deuteronomy leaves us feeling this morning. Be surprised if most of us aren't thinking to ourselves, do I? Do I love God like this? Do I? Do I obey God in this way? With a kind of obedience to his commands? All of my heart, 
all of my time, all that I am. And when we read that Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands, do we? It's easy, isn't it, to feel overwhelmed? Which, of course, is the point in this sermon when I need to say to you, only one person has ever fulfilled Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. Only one person has ever loved the Lord their God with all of his heart and soul and strength. And that person is Jesus Christ. So relax, chill, it's all right, he's done it, no probs. No, 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 you know it's not that way round. Because when you see what he's done, and, and when you realize that he's done it for you, when you see that he has lived the life that you should have lived, and still more wondrously, he's died the death, paying the penalty that we should have paid because we didn't, then you just want to love him all the more, don't you? For doing something like that for you. And of course, to love him all the more, actually, because of what we've seen this morning, means to obey him all the more. So knowing that you haven't done it, and knowing that he has done it for you, actually is what drives you to say, I'm going to do this for him. I'm going to love him. I'm going to obey him. Because he wants the best for me. And his commands are good. Let's pray together.